Welcome to the Managing People podcast, a place for people with curious minds. Hello, I'm Pete Fullard, and my guest this time knows all about managing creative and technical people and a whole range of stakeholders. After building lots of skills in her career, she founded her own consultancy specialising in all things communication and PR. In fact, it's probably easier to say the sectors she's not helped and worked with over the years than the ones she has. So, Veronica Hannan, welcome to the Managing People podcast. Thank you, Pete. Great to be here. Very good to have you on. So let's start as ever after school. What happened next then? Oh, heavens. Um, Okay, so I I think I will have to say that I I was a fairly unruly teenager. And um, when my my parents would always start the day with what on earth to do with Veronica to, to get her through school, through education, to get her to do anything of any worth. But I would say that actually they were also incredibly supportive. So they let me really explore whatever I wanted to explore, which was a phenomenal thing for them to do. So after school, I I went and had a, a year at art college where after about three months, my tutors all brought me into a room and said, what on earth are you doing here? Because you can't draw. And I was like, no, you're right. I really can't. Um, so I switched from art and went into drama and then went to university in London to drama school there. And I think that was actually a really formative experience for me because coming from being a unruly teenager where my fundamental belief is that authority is earned and never given so hence my propensity for breaking rules at every point um to actually being part of a really collaborative environment where teamwork was really at the center um to put on a production, you need to be able to get the best out of every person who's on that stage, who's behind the scenes, who's directing the show. And actually, I I wasn't that good at uh, acting, but I loved the directing part of it. So I majored in that. And that was that was brilliant because you, you're dealing with people, essentially. And also at that point, you're also... Some people will tend to say that creative people might be the most difficult to manage um, because they're brilliant, but also they're quite fragile. And um, I found that when when working with actors a lot, you're dealing with with actually people who need a lot of self-belief. And therefore, the way to get the best out of them is is not uh, not criticizing them. Uh, It's actually really helping them find and tap into that part of their personality that really delivers um, for the benefit of the production. So I I loved that. And I also started working at that time with some of my tutors in terms of helping them put on productions across London and touring theatre groups. So that also got me into the marketing communication side of things, which is um, where I ended up really in terms of my career. So that was my next step. Um, When I left university, I decided, though, although I loved the arts, I did want a career and I wanted something that was a little bit more stable. My husband is a writer and a performer, so one dramatic person in a relationship, I think, is enough. 
So I thought I needed something a little bit more stable and moved into publishing and um, have phenomenal career in the publishing industry, working initially with EMAP, which is one of the UK's largest um, publishers. And my, one of my first bosses was a young lad. Um, he was my age, we're at 22 years old, both of us. We were the youngest editorial team in this whole um, enormous publishing company. And we had great fun. I had absolutely phenomenal fun. And I worked on some really fascinating titles. One of them was called Glass and Glazing Products. And actually, my editor um, was a chap called Damon Beasley, who went on to write The Inbetweeners and then went on to write the series White Gold, which aired on BBC Two, which was exactly about the PVC industry back in the 1990s. So phenomenal, phenomenal experience, really working um, very closely in the small close-knit team. And then from there, I went into um, PR. I was headhunted to go into um, a PR firm where it was myself and two publishers who had come out. So very small team. We grew that very rapidly to 12 people. And then I moved into corporate PR, working with a top 50 um, London agency um, in corporate PR and communications. And then from there, after my children were born, moved out to the West Country and worked as managing director of an integrated agency in Cheltenham before deciding to set up Transform Communications. So nice, hopefully short enough, that bit of background to who I am. A very concise and rapid run through your career. And in those in those early roles, how were you managed? What was the management style like? So I, I would say I've I've always found dictatorial management styles not particularly conducive to getting the best out of me. Um, so there there were a few occasions when I came up against bosses like that, and those jobs were fairly short lived um, and usually a bit tumultuous. So. Um, I found that the, the types of environments that I really worked in were collaborative. And actually, I worked with some very, very talented people and I learned a lot. I remember one boss that I had at the um, Top 50 PR company and we were having a one to one session. And um, she said, so, you know. Tell me a little bit about you. And I said, well, I'm very flexible and I, I like team working and I'm not at all competitive. And she looked at me and she said, Ronnie, the only way I can get you to do anything is to tell you that somebody else is doing it better, quicker than you and, and you'll totally change. And I thought, isn't that an interesting insight? My view of myself was totally different from her view of me. Um, and that really started getting me interested in psychology and how people respond to different situations. Um, so I, I would say I'm still very collaborative. I, I like working. Um, I like working in a team environment, but I'm also fairly independent. Um, and yeah, there, there have been times personality clashes can come into it. But I um, actually during that my early career, they also my bosses were also really good in recognising that actually I can deal with difficult people. I think going back to the the aspect in um, 
in working in um, working in in drama, in plays, and putting on productions and things like that. Um, big personalities don't phase me at all. I'm I'm quite happy to deal and, and work alongside those as long as there is mutual respect. And how did those early experiences shape you as a manager and your approach to difficult situations, big personalities, etc.? So uh, it might, it might go back a little bit to to my upbringing. With so first of all, I grew up in South Africa, um, and my parents were missionaries who worked for peace and reconciliation. So there were a lot of very difficult conversations that my parents would have, a lot of very, very sensitive conversations that they would have when trying to move people from a fairly set position. Um, So if you can imagine this was South Africa during the apartheid era, there were a lot of people who had very opposing opposite views, but they, they had the fundamental belief that to change the world, you have to change yourself. And therefore, if you want to be able to affect any change in the world, you first need to look at who you are. And that combined with the experience of working in in, um, theatre production and that ability to really get the best out of people, no matter how difficult those situations are or were or how vulnerable people might feel in those situations, I think those actually formed a core part of my my people management style, which is really about listening to an individual, understanding where they are coming from, and being able to to form that individual relationship. Because even if you work at in in global organisations or, or big multinational publishing companies. Your team, your immediate team, the people that you manage, the people that manage you are usually quite small and condensed. So you have a phenomenal opportunity to get to understand an individual and that flexibility and adaptability. So if I can't change anything else, I can change me. And therefore, that that is the basis of how I look at things from a people management perspective. What do they need from me that I am I am in control of. And obviously with your interest in psychology and how people communicate, react, that has a big influence on your success in communications and PR. How has that knowledge of psychology helped you manage not only your own team, but also your clients? Because they're all very diverse and and have their own viewpoints. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, at at the heart of it, running a communications consultancy, um, we are once again in a people industry. So, yes, we have to focus on producing quality of work, but we are also there to really um, help those individuals in those organisations, whether that's freeing up their workload, providing um, creative ideas that might take their business forward, Um, We call it sort of, you know, being a a critical friend um, at points, you know, being able with that advisory capacity, which is really important, uh, being a sounding board and then also being the life and soul of the party um, when it comes to it. So it it does come down down to individual and people relationships. One client that we worked with was a leader in emotional intelligence as a form of understanding and part of our work as an external consultancy is really to get to understand our clients businesses and that meant really looking and trying to understand what 
what was meant by emotional intelligence. I'd read the Daniel Goldman book, you know, I had all of the theory and the knowledge, but how that it was actually applied in practice was still a little bit of a dark art to me. You know, how, 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 how do you do it? How do you develop emotional intelligence, both for yourself and for the people um, that you work alongside? And we were very lucky because they actually trained and accredited myself and um, my head of content, Carolyn, to become an emotional intelligence coach. And that was a phenomenal experience because it got us to understand how powerful this can be. So unlike unlike personality assessments, which we've all done various ones, I think everybody nowadays, um, whether it's a free online test or a Myers-Briggs more in-depth psychological assessment, um, a lot of people hold those. I, I sort of think about it, you know, uh, you have a name badge. I am I am a um, inspirational person or I am a ENTJ and that is who I am. I think it's useful to be able to give you some insight, but it doesn't necessarily help inform how you can flex and adapt because you sort of hold it. That's who I am. That's all. You know, that's me. In a package, whereas emotional intelligence gives that that rigor and that depth. So, um, Joe Maddox, who who wrote um, a book on emotional intelligence, describes it as a tree, where the leaves are the behavior that you exhibit. The trunk is is what you feel. Your body is your physiological. Um, sense of of what's happening to you and then the roots of the tree are um, your attitudes and those those attitudes are really core and fundamental and it's how we form our views of the world and it is through you know how we were brought up those early experiences the things that we hold as truths um, and the next aspect of that is you feel before you think so you get, we, we will all know that um, if you're in a, go into a situation that is slightly uncomfortable, your hands might start feeling a little bit sweaty or your cheeks will go red if you feel embarrassed or you might feel a little bit sick in your stomach. And tapping into those feelings is a really interesting way of being able to uncover what is actually happening to you physiologically at that way and therefore that affects how you behave so if you get triggered if your hands go sweaty or you get a, a red flush of anger because you're in a confrontational situation you're more likely to behave in an aggressive manner it's much harder to switch on the rational thinking brain so by by noticing that you will be able to um, change your behavior, but also by understanding what formed those core opinions. So some people might say, I hate conflict. I hate, I hate having difficult conversations. And therefore, so you go, how do, how do they make you feel? And they go, they make me feel really scared. You know, so my body closes in and I, I hold my head and I, grip my fingers and what does that mean in terms of actually how you behave? Well, I hold it all in, I don't express myself. Um, so 
by, by sort of tapping into that, you can then begin to explore and develop um, where those attitudes came from, you know, where the difficult situations, what had happened to you potentially in your past that made you think that was the, uh, the best way to behave. And I found that really opened my eyes in terms of both me. Um, my blind spot is myself. I think that everybody's greatest blind spot is them. Um, so I don't know how other people interpret me. I have my view. Other people have theirs. And going back to, you know, if I have to change something about how people respond, then I have to change how they are viewing me. And that can, that can mean having open, sometimes tricky, difficult situation, uh, difficult conversations. Maybe it's my South African uh, uh, um, childhood, but I don't, I, I don't find having difficult conversations difficult. I find having aggressive conversations difficult. I, I don't know if there's, there's, I think there are only few people who get pleasure out of that, but difficult conversations and like open and honest conversations that making yourself feel a bit vulnerable. I think that's a great model. And, and I, what particularly resonates with me is everybody has their own truth. Are there any examples that spring to mind about a practical situation when you were able to use a technique um, and it created a much more positive outcome than you were expecting? Yes. Yeah, ab absolutely. And it was when I was I was in my early 30s and I was working in a large consultancy in London and we had a very lovely but an, an infuriating client. Um, so she, she was a part of a very large and important client to the business. So um, very high value to us. But she had a horrific tendency of doing the, that terrible thing of when she had a, an issue or criticism, she'd send a very long email to everybody, to every single boss, vice president, managing directors, my bosses, the, the whole of the team. Um, and it, it started to cause quite an issue internally within our business. Combined with that, she was very high maintenance. So we'd get five emails, 10 calls a day. So people were always having to manage her um, to the point where actually um, my team started to say to me, I don't want to work on the client. Please, can I not work on her? The phone would go and literally everybody would hide under their desk because we all knew it was going to be her. So we were faced in that in that situation of, of thinking, we have to keep the client. That wasn't an option. It was it was too high value for us. But we had to have a conversation um, just in terms of that impact, how to manage, how, how could we have a better relationship? So she got what she needed out of it and didn't feel exposed to her business. So we, we ended up having a lunch and I, I said, I'm not that afraid of difficult conversations. This was one of them. Um, with the proviso from my boss, whatever you do, don't lose the client. That was that was the parting shot as I, I left for my lunch. Don't lose the client. So I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, and 
we spoke about ourselves being the blind spot. So I thought actually she needed to know some of the impact that her behavior was having on my team. And also I needed to understand what she needed from us. So it, it was that sort of, how do you have a very open conversation? Um, and it was, it was relatively forthright. And there were some things that we weren't doing um, that she needed to be done. And there were some issues around performance, which absolutely were in my gift to be able to address immediately. So it was by getting out those conversations and those themes and unpicking it that we began to understand what we both needed. And that, that was a brilliant outcome to it. So I, I left feeling relatively confident. You know, there wasn't any sign of sacking us or things like that that were coming through. And I walked back into the, into the office and everybody ran up and just said, thank you. And I went, what, what, what's happened? And she had personally picked up the phone to every member of the team to apologize. Um, it still makes me a little bit emotional, actually, because that was such a big step for her to take. And she had no idea, no idea at all, the impact that she was causing. And I think we veer away from those types of conversations because they are deemed to be too difficult. But actually, we both had skin in the game. She wanted to be very successful in her job. I wanted to make certain that her business was very successful because it was so important to, to our business. Um, so how could you match those two things? We were actually both in the same place. We were just approaching it from different directions. So that that's sort of one example about how I think unpicking some of those elements can be really helpful. And it sounds like perhaps she made a change in all parts of her, her approach because you've shown a, a different way to look at things. A absolutely. And she's gone on and she is a fantastic coach now. So yeah, I wouldn't hold any credit for that. That's that's all of her own, you know, to, to her own credit. And we still have a really good relationship. But yeah, it, it's so important, I think, to be able to to get that mutual understanding of where people are coming from, that really helps. Over the years that you've been working with a huge amount of sectors and different parts of the world, have you noticed looking inside your clients um, how management and techniques have changed over that time? Yeah, phenomenally changed. Um, and for, for the vast, vast, vast majority of things, I think for, for the better, um, the, the fact that individual styles and preferences are taken into account, the fact that people are so open now about some of their own vulnerabilities and their situations. When I first went into work, it was work was work and you were who you were at work and you left your emotions in the door and you put on your smile as you walked through and you were highly professional throughout all of the things all of the day. And I I personally feel quite strongly that actually you can't do that. You can't leave your emotions at home. They seep, they leak into every aspect um, of what you are what you are doing and how you are feeling. Um, and therefore if that is the case, we actually have to be emo emotionally open about what we are facing at that particular time. So I know that if I come in and I'm 
feeling very stressed. My management style reverts to a more command and control. I know that 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 is what happens. And I have to very actively make the decision to make time to settle myself and to be open to other people rather than just go, do this, let's get this done. We need to do this. We need to do the other. Um, And I think also what has, um, and the team here are fantastic, and they're fantastic about being very open um, about neurodiversity or different aspects or cultural differences um, or personality preferences. You know, some, some of us have a high degree of self-regard, you know, that, that we, we think we're all right, I'm okay. Um, others have a very high degree of regard for others, they're okay. As long as those are balanced, we're both okay and we're both fine. Um, it's when that imbalance comes into play that I think it, become, it becomes a little bit tricky. And how do you deal with imbalances between you and the team and the client's team? Because you have less influence over the client's team. From a, and I think this goes across any any business that works with any other business, actually. Although we're a consultancy, every business has got clients or customers or stakeholders that they need to, to engage with. So I think the, the key aspect to that is flexibility and adaptability. So how can we flex what we do to be able to accommodate what another team needs? So, um, you know, we talked about South African heritage, cultural aspects come into play on that. We, we work with um, organizations that I've never met in, never met personally, have lots of Zoom calls with in America. Their culture is very different from ours. Um, we deal with quite a lot of, of um, companies in Europe and Germany. Their culture is, is very different. And then you've got individual communication styles and preferences. So we sometimes have to tune into those before you um, have an emotional reaction. So one of our one of our, our clients has got a very very direct way of talking. Ronnie, blah blah blah. blah thanks. And you're like, oh, am I told off? I don't know. And you have to sort of unpick, and then you go, oh no, that's just their style. That's just how how they communicate. So, um, yes, you've got less control over it, but I think it it comes back to to my parents' belief, you know, to change the world, you have to change yourself. You can't change other people, other people's attitudes, feelings or behaviours. You can only change your own. Um, So that flexibility and adaptability of being able to take that into account before your emotions take over is really important. What would you say is the top skill for a people manager? The emotional intelligence aspect, 100%. The other critical piece for us is to look at, and it comes back to what I I said at the beginning about um, working with actors, is a strengths-based approach. So we've all been in situations where somebody says, Pete, you really need to be more assertive. You know, uh, so you need to develop your assertiveness skills and you go you go off and you get put on a training course for assertiveness. Well, if that's not who you are, 
that's not going to fundamentally change the way that you can act or behave in a way. So instead of that sort of um, looking at it from a weaknesses perspective, instead we try to look very, very closely at what are the strengths of the individual and how can those strengths be best deployed. Um, and that has led to some structural changes in in the teams that we have. So we used to have sort of teams that you would have a, as a client, you would have an account manager who would also produce some of the content, who would also deliver and develop some of the campaigns, who would also do this. So multi-skilled, multi-talented um, person in those areas, but quite focused on the delivery side of things. And when we started looking at the strengths-based, if you're asking somebody to um, be really great at creating content, they might not necessarily be the best at um, managing multiple levels of client conversations and multiple things going on because they're really good at focused, concentrated work and activity. So we split those out in the business. So we have an account management team who's all about the customer service and the program development and the project management, the keeping things on track and the multiple moving parts. And then we have a content and a design team whose real skill is creating and executing brilliantly in terms of the end product. So by taking that sort of simple lens of what are people really good at, you can then actually have quite fundamental organisational changes. What's the most common pieces of advice you've found yourself giving to, to newer managers? Don't assume the garment of what you think a manager should be and try and be that. So, you know, don't, don't put on the hat and the cloak and go, right, I'm now in command and control and I'm going to play this part. Um, actually look at it as how can I enable my team to be more effective? What do I need to give them? So management is a service position. That's an important switch in thinking, I think. How would you um, explain how you would coach a mentor a more experienced manager? Well done. You've just picked up on my biggest weakness. I'm a terrible delegator. I, I go in two directions, one of, one of which is I, I do a 60-yard throw, <laughs> what I call it. I just lob things. Um, and, and the other is that I keep and I hold um, control over. So I think, I think delegation is a, is a real skill, um, one I'm still learning and developing from that. But um, for the more experienced manager, I, I think or um, a manager of a larger team, I think it goes back to that adage of you should employ people who are better than you at doing those jobs and then give them the freedom, the resources and the tools and the time to be able to deliver against that. Looking back, are there any examples that you can share where you've just made a bright hash and a bad decision in terms of managing somebody? Talking about being first time time manager, I had been brought into a business where I was hired by um, somebody that I eventually ended up managing. So they did a sideways move, and I did a um, a leapfrog. And 
that I didn't approach in the best way. And I don't think I looked closely enough at what that would mean to him. I thought about it as what I needed. So my my relationship became quite quite difficult at that point. We butted heads quite a lot. Um, and it was once again by going off site and having a a couple of beers in a pub around the corner that actually we ended up figuring it out together. Um, but yeah, I I did make a hash of that and thought, you know, and uh, yeah, I I was egotistical and arrogant and thought, hey, there we go, I've I've done it. I'm now above you, and I can, you know. And I, I just got it 100% wrong. And it goes back to that humility being being brought, you know, brought down uh, was really important for me at that part. And it was a fundamental learning, really important learning for me. If you could go and give some advice to your younger self, what would that be? I think that advice most probably um, my co-director, Dan, um, brought me back a card um, that he had being given it was it was one of those little sayings cards um and he brought it into the office and he said Ronnie I saw this and I thought of you and he handed it over and it said well-behaved women rarely make history I would most probably say to my younger self don't lose the spirit don't lose the fight don't lose some of that recklessness and and that aspect I spent a lot of a lot of my um 20s and my 30s thinking okay I need to be very professional and I'm going to become a lot more composed if I was giving myself advice back in my 20s and 30s I would say obey the rules um you know listen listen to authority learn lots from that now as in my 50s I would most probably say don't lose that spirit maybe tamper it or temper it down a little bit but don't don't lose it. Keep keep what's what's there. And I I love that. I've got two children now, um, and they're in there. And they've just left home. One in university. One in her first time role. And and my advice is, you know, be true to who you are. You might need to to manage that a little bit, but don't lose it. Where do you think the future is going to be in terms of allowing teams to perform better? I think COVID taught us and showed us a lot. Um, I think it accelerated change in terms of where people worked, how people worked, how people engaged. Um, I don't think it was all to positive effect. And um, I must admit personally, during those two years, I really missed the personal connection we spend a lot of time at work. Um, everybody knows that. More time often than, than we would want to. We need to be able to, to get what we need as humans from that workplace. And I think if you if you take it back down, what do we need as humans? You know, we if you go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay, yes, we need to, the, the warmth and the security. But we also need that personal connection. Um, we need the intellectual fulfillment and we need some of the spiritual fulfillment. You know, organisations have now really taken place 
um, of a lot of what community or even family would provide us. You know, we talk about having purpose, um, giving meaning at work, all of those those different aspects. Those are all really important to be to be able to bring in. But the human connection for me, however that is formed, giving space for that in a working life, I think is is how we thrive as people. The human-centered um, approach to work is going to only become more important, which is contrary to what every um, technology visionary is talking about at the moment, where actually we're, we're all going to just be, um, be able to sit back. But I, I know that if you... If you have technology to enable um, your job to become more efficient and more effective, in in some cases, what is left? And it's the human connection. And is that your view on how AI will impact our working lives? Yes, very, very much so. So I, I had a fascinating conversation quite a few years ago with a um, AI developer, um, but he was also a psychologist. And we spoke a bit about, okay, so tell me, you know, if if you could have a operation performed by a robot that had um, absorbed all of the information from the thousand best surgeons and he's never going to have a bad day and he's, um, you know, she's never going to be impacted by something happening um, in life would you rather that or would you rather have a human do it to you? Um, and of, of course, it's a, it's a question that, that many people sort of have different views and opinions about. Um, but it's coming. You know, that, that type of technology is already, already here. Technology that um, you know, people talk about chat GPT and going, OK, so is that going to replace all communicators because it's natural language processing it, it does all of this you've got artificial intelligence that's affecting the design world you know where you can put in five key terms and they come up with a painting is that going to replace artists or graphic designers in the future and my view is no it will help us be more efficient yes without a doubt it could help us be more effective but actually once again what do we respond to as people? We respond to things that engage us on an emotional level. And I, I think AI is, is not going to get there anytime soon, at least hopefully not in my lifetime. And therefore it, come, it comes back to, we still are going to want to have a community of people around us. We need those rule breakers and people that are creative, don't we? Absolutely, 100%. So it's not to say it's not exciting. You know, I, I use chat GPT and the designers here use artificial intelligence, but we use it as a as a research, as a kickoff point. And then you apply the filter of creativity over it. What can we do with this? How can we make it? How can we change it? How can we? That's actually the fascinating part of my job. So as long as that remains... Um, I, I think we're all safe and secure and it can only make things more interesting going forward. One of the fascinating things that you do is you never stop learning new things. So I have to ask, what recommendations of people, places and books have you got for us? I came prepared. So <laughs> I, 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 will, I will. There is a stack next to me. So audio won't be able to hear this, but there is a stack of books next to me. Um, that I, I love learning, absolutely love it. Um, and I, I, I'm a reader, 
yes, I listen to podcasts and um, uh, audible books and things like that. But actually, I really love uh, curling up with a book and my team always take the mickey out of me because I go away on holiday and I'll have two fiction books and, and two business books to read. So there are a few that, that I have. Um, one book that I really loved was... Um, from the CEO of Zappos that talked to a, wrote a book. It's now quite old um, about delivering happiness. Uh, Zappos being an enormous, great big shoe retailer, um, online shoe retailer. And when Tony, um, the CEO, came into the business, he um, he looked at actually what is the real underlining purpose um, of their business, and that is to make every customer experience a happy one. And I thought that that was a lovely thing, and it totally transformed their operations because if your purpose is to to deliver a box full of goodies that make people smile when they open it, um, that's going to have to mean that your packaging is perfect, that your delivery is on point, that your customer returns, your customer service are, are 100%. So it was a really interesting way at how unpicking that purpose in a business can really transform how the whole business operates and runs. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, a recommendation for anybody who wants um, something fascinating and readable, whether his um, collection of short stories, he does one um, called What the Dog Saw, which are just little short stories and essays on a whole host of different things. And my favourite thing is mustard now comes in dozens of varieties. Why has ketchup stayed the same? Those sorts of types of questions that uh, are just fascinating um, make for great dinner party conversations. Um, a recent one that I've just read is um, one called Anthrovision, written by Gillian Tett, who was an executive editor at the FT. And she talked, um, she's an anthropologist by, um, by degree and um, had practiced anthropology. And she looks at the how important it is for organizations to employ the worm's eye view of an anthropologist as well as the bird's eye view of where they need to be going in the future. Brilliantly fascinating about um, how the use of anthropologists, there was one story in it, um, there was one part in the book which talked about a car manufacturer who had spent hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of developing an interactive dashboard in there that could make calls, send emails, do all of the rest of it. Um, you know, so huge amount. This is where the future is. This is where technology is going. And it didn't take on. Customers weren't willing to pay the additional premium to have this, this um, snazzy dashboard. Um, so they employ some anthropologists to go and have a look and answer the question of why is this not being adopting by people? And what the anthropologists found is in these new or um, all in, in, in interactive cars, people were sitting at the traffic lights and they were picking out their up their mobile phones and sending a text. And from that cultural aspect, they could have saved, in that view, they could have saved hundreds of millions of dollars by just developing a way to connect your phone to the car. Um, 
and that so some really interesting interesting stories and then of course i would i would come back to um joe maddock's book of um emotional intelligence at work how to make change stick um because it it's like a manual to emotional intelligence and it gives you how you can do it and how you can employ it not just why it's a good thing to do and in terms of people any uh, particular gurus or people that you constantly find yourself thinking they've got some smart ideas well i i know he's always mentioned but i i do follow simon sinek um on things and you know there was um he he did a piece that was particularly relevant um so we, we've had a team member join who's recently been diagnosed with ADHD. And what I didn't realise is that Simon Sinek has ADHD. And he talks, um, He it was just a, a short video that he did saying, why does everybody think that this is a disability in some way, that it's a diagnosis that means you can't, instead of looking at the real abilities that ADHD brings to people in terms of hyper focus so you know when he has an idea he will be able to get it down in a very short period of time he's ultra prolific but also he has ideas that other people don't have because he he makes connections across so many different things because he's like a magpie he just picks up stuff from all sorts of different places. But I didn't realise that about him. And that was really pertinent um, for, for me at that part at, the, at that point. And once again, I'd go back to, to Malcolm Gladwell. You know, if you if you want to have your brain stimulated, he's the guy that came up with, well, he didn't come up with it, um, but talked about out in his book Outliers, and he's done some really fascinating videos about it, about the 10,000 hours. Um, which was actually in a fairly dry academic study, but he brings it out and he tells stories around it. Um, and, and those stories are what really make, um, make people remember. I think that's important. You will remember Malcolm Gladwell. And in terms of places, I know as a TED Talk person yourself, having given one, is that somewhere that you still go to uh, get ideas from people? I love their purpose of, um, sharing ideas and their own story is absolutely fascinating. You can find out about anything that you want um, and you can you can get lost down the rabbit hole of TED very easily. Ronnie, it's been an absolute pleasure. One of my goals in life is to learn something new every day. I've always learned lots talking to you. So thank you very much for being on the Managing People podcast. And I look forward to getting together at some point again soon. Likewise. Thank you so much and great to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Managing People podcast. I hope you found it informative and useful. All the information mentioned is in the notes on the podcast page, and I hope you check out the other episodes. See you next time.